The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, We'll just conclude this discussion of what the Bible has to say about politics. So today, what the Bible says about politics, part two. If you were not here last week, I think I had about 11 principles that I covered. Just so happens there's 11 today. That was not intentional. Uh, It just... I think that was all I could fit on the paper is how that worked. That was, I had like 27 things to say, but limited time. So I had to prioritize what I would think we should be talking about with respect to these issues. Also, last week, it's important. If, if you were not here last week, last week was intentionally laying the foundation for what I was going to say to this week, today. The sermon is on the GBF website. It's online, so it would be very important to Listen to that sermon. So I guarantee if you were not here last week and you listened to what I have to say today, you're going to have a bunch of questions. You might even want to come up and ask me a bunch of questions. And all I'm going to say to you is, oh, that was in last week's sermon. That was in last week's sermon. So uh, first, listen to last week's sermon as well in addition to today. Then if you have questions, uh, totally open to taking more questions and email exchanges. Got a good positive response last week. From several people, face-to-face emails, uh, comments on this topic, because it is of such great interest to so many people in light of our election happening in just about a month away, what the Bible says about politics part two. Last week also, those of you who weren't here, I emphasized the fact that the 11 points that I made were indicatives, not imperatives, because I wanted to Try to lay out universal, binding, timeless, transcendent principles from the Bible as a foundation to frame the argument and also to give parameters of how we should think from a biblical worldview about politics and all that is intersecting with it. So 11 indicatives last week. Today we build on the indicatives as Paul does in his epistles, and he gives indicative, spiritual, timeless truths, and then he tells us what to do after that. In light of these truths, do this. And so if you'll notice, the 11 points that I have today, every one of them has an action verb in it because these are your imperatives. These are the things Christians should be doing now in light of last week's indicatives. As a matter of fact, most of the blanks on this piece of paper are the verbs, mostly, and that's intentional. So let's go ahead and look at these 11 truths of how we should think about politics. I did write an article in Grace Notes about six months ago in light of the election. Even at that time, six months ago, there was a lot of debate and argument, even among Christians and evangelicals. And it was very clear that the evangelical Christian world uh, in the high-profile positions on media and blogs and whatever else, Christians weren't agreeing on the candidates. Uh, And I'm talking about leading Christian voices. There, there wasn't one unified, uniform position about which candidate we should be supporting. And that's also true even today. So six months ago, I wrote, just noted in Grace Notes, quoting from all these respected evangelical Christian leaders and how they're all over the map in terms of the candidate uh, that they're advocating and supporting. So, which makes it difficult for many Christians because they want to look to, okay, what are our Christian leaders, our respected high-profile Christian leaders, what are they saying? Who are, who's the candidate they are endorsing and why? And there's no agreement. There is disparity. So that, that's confusing. And so that is also true today. Now that we're down to two, two, can, two main candidates here in this upcoming election, there's still disparity and not a whole lot of There is some agreement, but there's uh, also some disparity 
that's causing confusion, I think, for a lot of Christians. If you look at high-profile Christian leaders today about who do we vote for in this upcoming election on November 8th, out of the two candidates. And I just want to give you uh, just a few examples, okay? This is info I got this week as I was researching the issue. What, what, who are the most influential, respected evangelical leaders in, the, in America today, and what do they have to say, if anything, at all about the election? So let me just give you a few, and you can see uh, the differences. Uh, James Dobson, uh, highly respected and for many, many decades, uh, basically recently says that he is endorsing Trump, okay? And the, the main reason is because whoever becomes president picks Supreme Court justices, which is hugely significant because they go on for 30 and 40 years and they determine things like laws. For example, when marriage was redefined in this past year, that was a result of the nine Supreme Court justices. Five justices on the Supreme Court defined marriage in a new way for the first time in the history of planet Earth at that level and codified it as supposed law here in America. So that's just one example of huge implications that justices can play in our culture and in our nation. So that's Jane Dobson's reason why he's endorsing Trump in light of who Trump would appoint as justices. Phil Johnson, uh, who is John MacArthur's right-hand man and elder of Grace Community Church, has written uh, publicly on this. And by the way, he's not voting. He's not endorsing Clinton. By the way, none of these evangelical leaders are endorsing Clinton at all. And they they argue that a Christian can't. A, a Christian who is biblical with a clear conscience can't, primarily in light of her view on abortion and also her view of gay marriage, among many other things. So that is the one common denominator among well-known evangelical uh, Christian leaders. And so, but well, what about Trump? And then Phil Johnson argues, well, he's not voting for Trump, and he argues that a Christian shouldn't vote for Trump. As a matter of fact, if a, a Christian votes for Trump, that's actually a sin. And he argues this case, and his main reason is because uh, Trump is a wicked person. And then Phil Johnson goes on and says that Christians should write in a Christian candidate. And actually, in Phil Johnson's article, he says that Trump is not qualified to be the president. Doesn't give a whole lot of reasons why. Uh, and so I would, so I thought about that. And I, Phil, I'm a friend. I know Phil. And after reading, I just thought, well, actually, that's not true. Trump is qualified to be president because uh, here are the qualifications to be president. The qualifications are not in the Bible to be president. The qualifications to be president are in the Constitution. And we got to remember that. Uh, here are the qualifications in the Constitution. You need to be a born citizen here in America. You need to be having lived here for the last 14 years here in America as a born citizen. You need to be at least 35 years old and not convicted of a felon. And for the most part, boom, you're, you're qualified. Those are the qualifications of the Constitution. Uh, as a matter of fact, the following people are legitimately qualified to be president of the United States of America, if we just thought about it, based on the Constitution, because the qualifications are not in the Bible. Uh, we need to keep in mind the Constitution is a secular document, and the role of president is a secular position. We noted that last week when we noted that Jesus said, we are living under the times of the Gentiles. We aren't living in a theocracy. Nowhere, no nation on planet Earth today is living under a theocracy. We are being dominated by the rule of the Gentiles. And in Matthew 25, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus said this about how Gentiles and secular leaders rule. Gentile leaders rule. This is my adaptation. 
uh, by putting their foot on your neck. That is how they rule. Might makes right. So you can read that, Matthew 20, verse 25. That's Jesus' commentary of what is going to typify the rule of the Gentiles under which we live all over the world, all 195 nations, until Christ comes again and establishes his theocracy. Times of the Gentiles. Uh, but anyway, the fo- according to the Constitution of the United States, the following people are eligible to run for president of the United States. They are legitimately qualified. A woman, an atheist, a Wiccan, a Mormon, an agnostic, a Hindu, a humanist, a transgender person, a Mason, which is of the occult. By the way, we've had a lot of those. If you look at the history of the 43 presidents, we've already had a lot of those. A Scientologist, a, a WWF wrestling, wrestling star. We've already had a governor who was one of those in Minnesota, so why not the president? A Hollywood star is qualified, can be qualified to be the president. A Saturday Night Live comedian. We already have a senator that's one of those. A, a feminist, an anti-Semite. A casino owner, a used car salesman, I could go on and on. They are legitimately, can be qualified to be president of the United States because it's not an ecclesiastical position and there are no biblical, spiritual, ecclesiastical, even moral qualifications other than not being convicted of a crime. So I think that's important to consider um, when we're, we're talking about this issue. Which leads me to another point that many unbelievers have served as president in the past here in the United States of America. I'd say most of the 43 presidents haven't been truly born again believers running things by the Bible or their own personal lives. That's evident and obvious. But there have been some of these presidents who haven't been Bible believing born again Christians who actually fulfilled the role of president. And as statesman and as public servant. And they did okay at it in a respectable way. Thomas Jefferson would be an example from all the historians. For the most, the majority of historians and people would say Thomas Jefferson uh, did a decent job as president of the United States. But he was not a uh, uh, Bible-believing, born-again Christian at all. Denied the deity of Christ. Denied the gospel, even to his last breath on his deathbed. Put it in writing. Uh, Many would say, even Republicans, that John F. Kennedy was a decent president in terms of abiding by the Constitution even though he was uh, a serial adulterer and a philanderer and his moral life was in the tank, but just tried to hide it from the world. In terms of his role as president, many people would say that he's probably in the top ten in terms of presidents. Uh, Going to the Bible, were there any unbelieving pagan presidents, kings, who seemed to do a decent job as king? Well, there was King Ahasuerus who ended up marrying Esther, and you read that book in the first chapter, you find out King Ahasuerus, he's a pagan He doesn't know the true God. He has a harem. He is immoral to the core. He is addicted to alcohol. He flaunts his materialism. He is pompous. He is arrogant. He's displaying himself. He puts a party in a banquet on for 180 days, and he is the star. He is ruthless. He gets angry. Yet at the same time, that is balanced by, as you read the rest of the story, at the same time as king, many times he is just. He's level-headed. He's balanced. He abides by law. So it is possible for someone who's not a Christian to, in in that position of power, to abide by law because even unbelievers are made in the image of God. They can be sensitive and in tune with natural law, which comes from natural revelation. 
And there is also common grace that God bestows on all men. So these are things that aren't really talked about a lot of times in this argument about who do Christians vote for. Many times it's just a, uh, I think, a unilateral, um, one-dimensional answer that people are giving. So to say that, well, this guy, this candidate, he's wicked, therefore I can't vote for him. Or he's not a Christian, therefore I can't vote for him. I've already argued that last week this is a position that doesn't require someone to be a Christian in terms of the qualifications. Um, and you can't say, well, this unbeliever is wicked and this unbeliever is not wicked, but he's righteous because the Bible diagnoses all unbelievers the same all over the place. Jesus said, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, then you're a son of the devil. John chapter eight. First, John says the same thing. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Second Corinthians chapter six. Paul makes it clear. He says that unbelievers are lawless. They are lawless to the core in the heart, and they are sons of Belial, the devil. And then he says believers are sons of the light and of Christ. So he makes a very stark contrast at the heart level. And so we can't uh, start recategorizing unbelievers as this is a good unbeliever, this is a wicked unbeliever, this is not a wicked unbeliever. That just isn't how the Bible diagnoses things. So uh, many things come into play. So that's uh, two respected Christian spokespersons. The other one is my pastor, John MacArthur. He doesn't speak out on these issues typically, hasn't for many years, but every once in a while uh, at the Shepherds Conference he has said things, and recently at the last election, it was kind of funny, uh, five years ago at that last election he said publicly in front of 5,000 men and on the air to probably millions all over the country, uh, that he was going to vote for Huckabee because he's a Christian. That was John, Pastor John's reason. Because he's a Christian, I'm voting for Huckabee, which was what was funny was I just got finished talking to a family member of his, his who told me they're voting for Mitt Romney, a family member of his, So, which is a good reminder that uh, we are all kind of the same and battling through and thinking through individually what are the principles by which we abide in terms of the candidate. So, But John's position many times is I'm not going to get into politics. Al Mohler, highly respected. Uh, he's not voting for either major candidate right now because they are, quote, morally flawed, and he's going to write in a Christian candidate. Uh, Jerry Falwell, Jr., president of one of the largest Christian universities in the world, is endorsing formally and outspokenly so Donald Trump and has for the last year. And his latest formal statement is, even though he is flawed, he's listening to the Bible, he's embracing the gospel, he's a changed man, and he's different than the guy he was 10 years ago. And so that's uh, as Jerry Falwell has been ministering the truth of the gospel to him. That's Jerry Falwell's perspective, and that's what he has written. So that's why he's voting for Trump, and also because of the appointments that the president will make to uh, the justice level of who the judges are. Franklin Graham uh, has gone kind of around and around. He was a registered Republican for years and decades, very involved in politics like his dad, just went around the country to all 50 states uh, on a kind of a crusade to each state talking about the election with his main goal, praying. Let's God's people pray, which is great, fulfillment of 1 Timothy 2. But at the same time, he has made formal statements that he has condemned the Democratic Party and they undermine biblical truth and morality. So he can't endorse anybody who's a registered Democrat running for office. And at the same time, he said, I can't support the Republican Party either. And so I have withdrawn my membership in the Republican Party this past year because of their compromise. And, he's, and then he goes on to say that, Every Christian needs to get out and vote. And I'm, well, wow, you didn't tell me who to vote for. You just condemned the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And, but I need to get out and vote. That's a dilemma. But uh, I appreciate Franklin Graham's heart for prayer. Uh, so, but that's a different point of view. Max Licato, one of the most influential pastors in America and a man of integrity and great respect, 
uh, a true born-again evangelical godly man committed to the Bible, has made a public statement recently in the last 10 days, wrote about it, blogged about it, and the title is uh, Max Lucado Makes His Election Prediction. Oh, good. I'm going to get a... This will be good. And then what did Max say? He said, I predicted after the election on November 8, on November 9, God will still be on the throne. And then the end of the article. <laughs> that, that was kind of the easy... I'm going to say the sissy way out. But anyway... Um, so if you're looking to who to vote for with respect to a candidate, Max Lucado, uh, he, he was helpful, but not helping me decide who I need to vote for. Um, anyway, so those, that's just a sampling just to show you they're kind of, uh, all over the map. And I think the biblical solution is not for me to tell you who to vote for, uh, rather than to tell you how to vote in keeping with biblical principles is actually more important because you need to think about It's your conscience. That's really important, by the way. You can't vote against your conscience. Paul is clear about that. The Spirit of God is clear about it. Don't vote against your conscience. At the same time, you can have an ill-informed conscience. So make sure your conscience is properly informed with biblical truth. So then when you do vote, you're voting with your conscience in accordance with biblical truth. Very, very important. That will come out in one of our points. So let's go ahead and see how many we can get through here before the election. Points 1 through 11. I tried to write out the verses just to save us time. So let's go ahead and look at it. What does the Bible say about politics? What should we do uh, as Christians in light of the upcoming election? Point number one, you need to think spiritually and not politically. It's a great temptation. If you have interest at all in politics and you're watching all the TV programs, listening to talk radio, and that becomes the majority of input for you, you could lose balance and perspective as a Christian. We need to be thinking spiritually, not politically. Who is your real enemy as a Christian? Is it, if you're a Republican, it's the Democrats? No, it's not God's point of view. That's not thinking spiritually. So this is a great verse. Uh, Ephesians 6, 12. I want to read it. Uh, Because it is so practical, relevant, helpful. Um, The end of chapter 6, Paul says to Christians, it's true. If you're a Christian today, this is true of you. This is how we are to see the world. Our struggle, our battle, who our enemies are, our battle, our struggle in this life is not against flesh and blood. So our battle is not against human beings. It's not against those of a different political party or persuasion. Not really. Our struggle really is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers. What rulers? Human rulers? No. Spiritual rulers. Invisible rulers, demonic rulers, heavenly rulers, that's what it's talking about. Against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, this sinful fallen world, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a reference to Satan and his angels. That is the real enemy. That's how we need to think as Christians. That's what I mean by thinking spiritually. Who's the real enemy? It is sin, deception, lies, Satan, his demons. Death, hell. And the evil world system that those are our enemies and it is spiritual. So we need to recalibrate our thinking, maybe if we're thinking too politically, because that is a very narrow, stilted, myopic grid by which by which to view life, especially for a Christian. Think spiritually, not politically. Number two, think globally, not nationally. I mean, there are literally. I went on Christian significant, well-known Christian evangelical church websites. And on some of the main pages of their websites, 
They're very political. Even some conservative uh, churches saying one of their, their goals, one of the Christian goals, is to save America. Really? Save America. Reclaim, that the phrase is actually, reclaim America. That's not in the Bible. That is actually very ethnocentric. That's myopic. That is narrow-minded. As a Christian, you think of yourself first and foremost as an American? That is narrow-minded. It's not bad to think of yourself as an American because we are to be responsible citizens. But first and foremost, we are children of the king, right? That's our identity. We've been adopted into the family of God. Nations come and go. We saw that last week. So you need to think globally. And by the way, when you get to go other countries to do ministry, that really helps you think globally. It really does. So maybe you should do that. Start thinking globally. Expand your horizons. Get outside of this country. It's more difficult for some of us than others. But maybe you go on a short-term missions trip. For those of you who have been to Mexico and other places. So I was thinking about that, meditating on it yesterday. God has made me more globally minded. Because we need to be that as Christians. Jesus said, God so loved the world, not God so loved the America that will come into existence in 1776. No. God so loved the world. And that means all nations, all people, all tribes, all over the all, Every 195 nations is vitally important before God and needs to be to the church, the Christian, and the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus said, go and take the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. Go beyond your hometown. Go beyond your home state. Go beyond your home country to the ends of the earth. That is the mission. It's not reclaim America. Globally minded. And I was thinking yesterday, wow, I have I have consciously been thinking about my friend in Albania. And how it gets rough there at times in terms of persecution. Uh, my friend in Kiev or my friends in Kiev. Problems there. And then uh, the friend I have who is in Russia and St. Petersburg, as we correspond regularly through email. And many of these other nations. And that helps you be a global Christian. A friend I have in Germany who's a pastor doing a church plant. So for you, if you're able to do short-term mission trips, adopt a, min- adopt a missionary in another country. It's a great way to be globally minded. You're praying for them. You're in contact with them regularly. Uh, you read those new l- newsletters about the voice of the martyrs as you think about other believers in other countries, what they're enduring and going through and what their needs are and how they're being persecuted and how you can pray for them. The relationship we have with John Paul in India, it's a very personal one we have with our church, helps us be globally mind- minded beyond ourselves. So think globally, not just nationally. We do need to care about our own country, but beyond that. Number three, after think spiritually, not politically, think globally, not nationally. Number three, don't get comfortable with this world or this life. James talks about this, the epistle. First John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Uh, the context there is do not love the system of the world, the priorities of the system that are godless, that are dark, that are contrary to the Bible, wealth, fame, materialism, uh, going up the ladder of success, living for self, being consumed with self, living apart from the church community and the biblical community and uh, not being engaged in thinking about consciously the great commission and advancing the kingdom of Christ. That's what it means to not love the world, the ideals of the world, the ideologies of the world, all these things that are contrary to Scripture. Don't get sucked into that. And it's very difficult for us as Christians 
to not be influenced by that because we live in the world, right? So that is always a temptation. And James, his epistle says the same thing. The one who is a friend of the world can't be a friend of God. So don't get sucked into it. Number four, live as salt and light. Jesus said to do it. That whole section in Matthew. He's talking to believers. Let your light shine. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So he gives an indicative. This is your identity. This is who you are. This is what God has made you in Christ. Then he says, live accordingly. He gives an imperative after that. Live as salt and light. Let your light shine. You are the light of the world. God has made you light. He saved you. He's put his spirit in you. He's given you a mouth to speak truth. Live as light. What does, a, what does light primarily do? Light exposes darkness. And that's what the lifestyle of a Christian needs to be. We go out and we expose the darkness. That's light. And we speak truth. Then he says, uh, not only to let your light shine, but also you're the salt of the earth. Live accordingly. What does salt do? Uh, Salt does many things. It's a preservative. It preserves things to keep them from getting contaminated. We need to preserve truth as we go into society. We are a preservative. And there are many people that don't like preservatives. Salt can be very irritating. It makes people uncomfortable. So this is a proactive lifestyle of speaking up of living godly, of being proactive, of being integrated into society as a Christian, not secluded and isolated into some holy huddle. That's what salt is, sprinkled throughout. Live accordingly. Number five, we need to pray in line with Scripture. This is one of the few passages that is explicit for the Christian in terms of an imperative of what we should do when it comes to government. So look at 1 Timothy 2. It's so important. I want to read it out of the the chapter here. 1 Timothy 2. Read it last week. Keep in mind, as as Timothy is writing this, he's saying, okay, Christian, you need to pray. Prayer is a priority. So, you know, praise God for Franklin Graham setting that example, calling God's people to pray for the country, for your leaders. Paul does the same thing. While Paul is telling Christians to pray, uh, the leaders that Paul was living under and Christians that were living under in this part of the world, they weren't Christian. They didn't have a Christian worldview. They were pagan leaders. They were morally corrupt and bankrupt. But at the same time, Paul is still saying we need to pray for these leaders. And we need to do the same thing. So first of all, Christian, I command you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, starting with kings and rulers. For us, that would be the president. Presidents, those who rule. For kings and all who are in authority. Pray for them. What do we pray? One of the things we pray is pray for the leaders of the country in which you live in order that for the purpose of that we as Christians may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we need to pray that whoever the king is, regardless of how immoral he is or she is, how godless they are, how cruel or tyrannical they are, our prayer is that as Christians in society, we will be allowed to live out our Christian faith nonetheless as good citizens. Following the law, paying our taxes, being kind, conscientious neighbors, and at the same time, being a light and salt for Christ wherever we go, despite the laws that are coming from the Gentile rulers. That's the prayer. That should be our heart's desire. That's how we should pray. God, put whoever gets elected in the Senate, in the House, in the presidency, in uh, as governor of the, your state, 
God, make it possible that we as Christians in the church can continue to do and fulfill the Great Commission in a tranquil and quiet, God-honoring way. That's our prayer. That is the main prayer. Then you can go through the Psalms and see all kinds of prayers that are legitimate prayers, godly prayers, biblical prayers that saints prayed about their kings, about their pagan, godless rulers at the time. You'd be surprised at some of those prayers. Some of them are imprecatory. Imprecatory, what is that? That's calling God's justice down to earth. God, fix this situation. This is horrific. Move heaven and earth. Which is similar to how Jesus said to pray in Matthew 6. The Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom, the kingdom up in heaven, which is perfect righteousness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. So that needs to be a part of our prayer life. That isn't save America. It's God may some justice reign here in our midst. As we are all made in God's image, whether you're a Christian or not. So that's a legitimate prayer. Here's a prayer in Revelation 16. This is a prayer of real believers in the future who get slaughtered, murdered, beheaded because they believe in Jesus. This is happening right now all over the world. People who hate Christians are murdering and slaughtering Christians. Well, this this is this is a prophecy of what's going to happen. Revelation 610 and uh, they get slaughtered. They get beheaded. They are killed because they follow Jesus. And then we get a glimpse into heaven. They are praying, interceding unto God on behalf of fellow believers still on planet Earth under this duress. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, will you, almighty God, refrain from judging and avenging our blood here on? On earth against earth dwellers, those who hate you. How long, God? God answers that prayer and he says, you know what? You need to be patient. You need to be patient. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? Rarely is our timing in keeping with God's perfect timing. So that, that's a variety of kinds of prayers that I put down there for you. Okay, so uh, be a prayerful Christian. Number six, be a discerning Christian as well. Be a discerning Christian regarding political issues, the candidates, uh, the things on your ballot which means you have to do research, you have to think, you have to do your homework uh, and do it with a biblical worldview. Biblical principles have to reign supreme. That has to be the grid by which you view everything. It's not easy. Be discerning. First uh, Thessalonians 5.21. Hey, Christian, examine everything carefully. Literally, scrutinize everything. Scrutinize everything. Be discerning. Examine it. That's what it means. Be, criti- be a critical thinker. That's what it means. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to cling to. Be drawn to that which is good. That's holy. Biblical. And then it says abstain from every form of evil. And that's how you need to view politics, the candidates and the issues. Be a discerning, critical. Just because you heard it on your favorite radio station does not mean it is true. Or your favorite TV station. Or on your favorite website or blog. Be discerning. There's a lot of verses regarding being discerning. Uh, just a pointer about being discerning. Say you're, uh, Consider the source of your information. That's hugely important. If you're listening, say your news outlet is CNN. Consider the source. Who owns CNN? Their worldview. Those presenting the information. 
you got to consider the source. It doesn't just pick your channel. It doesn't matter. ABC, NBC, MSNBC, whatever. Then there are Christian uh, outlets as well. They're rare. But even those, you've got to be discerning. Consider the source. Consider the worldview. But what worldview is spewing this information? Is it reliable? Or does it have an agenda? Is it prejudiced? Is it skewed? Many times it's, it's skewed and it's not reliable. So you've got to be discerning, do your homework, and always vetting it through Scripture. What does Scripture really have to say about this issue? Scripture is sufficient. Okay, number 6.5. I added one at the last minute. Because I thought this was important, especially in light of this week. Some things I saw going on. 6.5 is don't argue or debate with fellow Christians about the upcoming election. For some of you, that might be very difficult to do. Maybe some of you think that's fun. <laughs> it's just it's not a good example. Some of it, I mean, you just read some of these exchanges going on, like I said last week on Facebook and in other formats. It's, it's actually terrible. Talk about it? Sure. Have civil discussions? Sure. Debate about it? Sure. Getting nasty with each other, judgmental, saying if you vote such and such a way, it's sin, when hmm, maybe that's not the case. So be careful about that, 6.5. Number seven, expose false worldviews. This, this is the lifestyle we need to have. I need to read this. This is Second Corinthians 10.5. Um, very helpful. This is the Apostle Paul speaking of himself and really calling all Christians to live this way as salt and light in the world. One of the things that God has called us to do is not just go with the flow and uh, float downstream the same way everybody else is going in the way of the world. Actually, we swim upstream. We, we go against the grain. And we're called to do that. As a matter of fact, we are called, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 10, to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take every thought, idea, ideology, a statement that is made and subject it to the truth of Christ as found in the Bible. That's the end of verse 5. That is a mandate for every Christian. But before that, Paul gets very graphic in terms of his terminology. And he says, verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, though we are human beings, living among human beings, both saved and unsaved, we don't war according to the flesh. Even though we're flesh living, we don't war in the same way that an unbeliever wars. Our war is in the heavenlies in the spiritual realm in the invisible world the spiritual arena the demonic arena the satanic arena the heavenly arena the angelic arena that's the source of worldviews philosophies ideologies theologies the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses what is our greatest weapon it's truth that's what he means and we as christians are destroying and so that he is using military terminology. We are destroying. We are decimating. We are in a battle. We are proactive. We are attacking. We are not on the defense. We are on the offense. We are destroying speculations. Speculations are false ideas, false ideologies, false political views. We don't tolerate false political views. We destroy them. Not with physical violence, but with spoken truth and written truth. That's what he means. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So Paul is again reminding us that it is ultimately important how we think. And that's true of the Christian. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So be proactive in exposing error in keeping with God's truth. Number eight. Invest in ministry, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. 
like I said, one or two two of these websites I was looking at of churches uh, and what they're promoting, suggesting their people do. I'm thinking, wow, this is all this is political. This is all uh, go out and save America, go out and campaign. And it's all politically oriented. And I'm thinking, really, is that what pastors, elders and the church should be commanding its people to do with respect to its time, energy, resources, money, when all of that is limited? And we already have a commission from Jesus. We have our commission and our goal. We don't need a new one. So it's the same thing. It's the timeless truth. Invest in ministry. Invest in starting at the local church. That is your home. That is your hub. Uh, Paul said clearly in Timothy that the church, the local church and the church universal is the pillar or the guardian of truth that God has entrusted to humanity. So invest in ministry. That's how you need to spend your time as a Christian. How do you spend your time? How are you investing your time? What are your goals and aspirations? It should be oriented towards ministry. And just by way of example, I put those three examples down. Uh, very simple. Worship. So as a Christian, regardless of what's going on in the political realm, your worship should be consistent. You are going to church. You're with a local body. You're a part of a local church. The local church is your family. You're involved with those people. Because that is a command of God. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Don't neglect worship in the, in the local church as some Christians actually make a habit of doing. So that needs a priority. Number one is going, worshiping God, giving him his due. He is the Savior. He is the Creator. Do not neglect that. Don't anything else usurp that priority away. Discipleship. You should be involved in it because that's what Jesus said. This is the Great Commission. Make disciples. Are you campaigning? Are you spending time on this, that, and at the same time? Who are you discipling? Every Christian needs to be able to answer that question. Who are you discipling? I'm, di- I'm pouring my life spiritually in a christ-like mentoring deliberate manner in somebody else's life another christian discipleship and who's discipling you every christian needs to be able to answer that question who are you discipling who's discipling that's just basic christian obedience that's how we invest our time Uh, and then evangelizing sharing the gospel planting the seeds praying for the seed that was planted and it needs to be an ongoing regular part of our life evangelizing sharing it's really that simple this is where we need to invest our time. So the church can't be uh, off focus and derailed by these distractions of an upcoming election. Although they're important, got to keep the priority straight. Number nine, be a faithful steward. First Corinthians 4, 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What is a steward? A steward is somebody that has been entrusted with a valuable commodity Spiritually speaking, this is from God. God has given you something. God has given you a gift. It's precious. It is valuable. It's beneficial. Now, the person that has it usually likes it and enjoys it. It's not from you. It's not from me. It's from God. He owns it. But he gave it to us to use it, to use it to its full, to use it to its potential. And because ultimately we don't own it, God's going to take it back. He's going to then there's going to be an accounting. That's a stewardship. A spiritual gift is a stewardship. God gave every Christian a stewardship of a spiritual gift. He expects us to use it to the full. We will be held accountable for it. It is not ours. It's a gift from God. It is a blessing. It is good. It's for our good. It's for the growth of others. We'll be held accountable for it. If we did well, we'll be blessed and rewarded for it. If we didn't use it well, there will be loss of reward for it. That's a stewardship responsibility. And there are many in our life. Stewardship responsibilities. I believe that the ability to vote, if you're a citizen in the country, is a stewardship responsibility. It is. 
I was reminded last week after my sermon, somebody came up and said, uh, Pastor, great sermon, very helpful, I'm clueless. If you were here last week, you know what that means. A clueless Christian, <laughs> they don't know the is. And they reminded me that I'm from, but I, I am from this foreign country and they don't vote there. We don't even think about these matters. <laughs> that was a great reminder for me. Wow, that's true of so many countries around the world. They don't even have a say. They don't have a vote. What a great privilege we have. And it's a stewardship responsibility as a result. So take it seriously. Lay it before God. Ask for God's wisdom. Seek godly wisdom. As how, If you are in a position to actually vote on things as a citizen of this country, then do it well. Treat it as a stewardship. That it's a gift God gave you that you are accountable for. You want his wisdom. You want to please him with it. You want to invest it the right way. And you will be held accountable for it. That makes it pretty serious. So, like I said, you could, you know, you can legitimately write in a candidate. That's fine. If you're informed and prayerful and don't want to violate your conscience, that's okay to do. And many Christians actually said they're going to do that. But let's be faithful stewards. Uh, Number 10. Prioritize specific issues. Now I'm going to get real political. Sorry, on 10 and 11. Or just 10 and 10.5. Prioritize specific issues biblically. So if you are thinking about, okay, man, pastor, you're getting all these, you know, universal, timeless biblical principles, but I want to know about the election in four weeks. Lay it on me. Well, I will a little bit. This is true of every election where I have an opportunity to vote. I want to think biblically and be a steward before God. And there are issues that are affected by ballots that we cast. And I think the Bible speaks to these and there is a priority of issues. In the city of Cupertino on the ballot might be uh, give so much of this tax money so that the city of Cupertino can fix the potholes in my neighborhood once every five years. That is not as important as this legislation is going to affect how we deal with and act on the sanctity of life with respect to unborn children in this country. Those are two totally different issues. One is explicitly in the Bible and has to do with the life of a human being made in God's image. That is a priority. So that's why I put number one, priority number one or A, is the sanctity of life. That should be foremost in the mind of a Christian. Because God is clear. This is not ambiguous. From Genesis to Revelation, what God thinks of life. Every soul is mine, Ezekiel 18, says the Lord. Every soul. In the Psalms, it is clear. Psalm 51, verse 5, it is clear. That a human being comes into existence at the moment of conception. That is the biblical position. In the Gospel of Luke, when John the Baptist was in the womb of his mother and Jesus, the Bible uses the terms calling them son, child, he, and even baby. This is not an issue from a biblical point of view for a Christian. The sanctity of life. God is the giver of life. God is the only one who can legitimately take life away. Life is precious. Every life is precious. To kill a baby in the womb through abortion is murder. It really is. And that's why all the earlier evangelical leaders that I quoted, who were kind of all over the map on other issues, they all agree on that. And I have preached a sermon on what the Bible says about the sanctity of life. Don't have time to do that right now. The sanctity of marriage, the second one. 
This is huge. But the two candidates we have right now, they've spoken on this issue. They've spoken on both of these issues. They've laid out policy on these issues. I remember when Proposition 8 was an issue within the last 10 years here, and people were telling Christians, even fellow Christians were telling other Christians, you can't talk about this, you can't preach on this, you can't uh, bring the Bible in on this issue of same-sex marriage because it's a political issue and there's separation of church and state. I heard that all over the place. I'm thinking, wait, the definition of marriage is a political issue? No, actually, that's how the Bible begins in chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. God created a man and a woman. Be fruitful and multiply. And then in chapter 2, God gives more definition to it for this cause. A man shall leave his parents, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then five times, at least in the New Testament, including from the words of Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, they invoke Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and explain the sanctity of marriage. It is one man, one woman for life. That won't change despite the political culture in any given age. And then John comments on it even more importantly, as does Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, the importance and the sanctity of marriage. Marriage as God has ordained it and created it, man and woman together, ultimately its greater significance is that it is a living metaphor and a picture of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. You tamper with that, you tamper with that image that eternal image where Jesus Christ will be married to his church for all eternity. So that's why Hebrews 13 is very sobering, very clear. Don't mess with marriage. And I want to read that. Uh, Hebrews 13, if you have your Bible. uh, The last chapter says marriage, and it's just kind of an independent statement. That's how important it is. Marriage, this is man and woman. The institution of marriage is to be held in honor among all. Notice it's, okay, Christians, you Christians need to honor the institution of marriage. That isn't what it says. This is for humanity. This has been true, by the way, for 6,000 years, that every culture, every religion, for the most part, all over the world, and those who don't have religions, have honored the institution of the marriage in terms of the majority that marriage is between a man and a woman. That has always been honored all throughout the history of the world. It's been the dominant view. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And so this command is binding for all cultures, but for the creator God. Marriage is to be honored among all. Everybody needs to honor it. It's basic. Basic to society. Then he gets more specific. And by the way, the marriage bed, not the institution of marriage, but the relationship between one man and one woman. And when it says, and the marriage bed, actually the Greek word is koitis. That is the actual sex or the the actual act of a man and a woman. The highest level of intimacy. That is the Greek word. It's very specific, which can't happen, by the way, between people of the same gender. That act of intimacy in marriage, it is undefiled, and anybody that violates it is a fornicator or an adulterer, and God will judge them. That's how severe this is. So for me, when I'm thinking about candidates, elections, rules, all that stuff, these are definitely a priority from a biblical and Christian point of view. Then also C is just generally the rule of law. Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 1 comments about this, the rule of law. We want leaders that are going to uphold legitimate rules of law. By the way, in the Constitution, even though it's a secular document, it never quotes the Bible, it never quotes Jesus, it never quotes the gospel, it never quotes the church, it never quotes Christianity, the the U.S. Constitution. 
So it's a strictly secular document. At the same time, it doesn't lay out anything that's contrary to the Bible either. It doesn't undermine the Bible. It doesn't compromise the Bible. There's nothing in there blasphemous. So actually on that, the faith, it's actually a good document because it was put together by men through common grace and natural law that came from general revelation, which is complementary to the Bible, not in conflict with. There are nations of the 195 nations on planet Earth today that have constitutions or laws that actually contradict the Bible and undermine the Bible as the law of the land. But not in the Constitution. So that's actually a good thing. So the law is good. Honoring the law is good. Submitting to the law is good. Generally speaking, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Pay your taxes. Romans 7, read more. 1 Timothy 1, read more. By the way, I need to add D. Shouldn't have left this off. Just put Israel. A candidate's view of Israel. Genesis chapter 12. God made it clear. Israel is still God's people. Israel still has a future in God's plan. That is clear in Romans 9 through 11. All Israel will be saved. They are still precious to God. God made eternal promises and covenants to them. He's not going to abandon Israel. The United States hasn't supplanted Israel like some Christians think. Genesis 12 still holds true. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. That's been true all throughout human history. It still is true today. That needs to be a priority of the Christian is your view of Israel and candidates view of Israel and how we act as a nation towards the nation of Israel. That doesn't mean they are born again, Bible believing people today, but God makes it clear. Be careful with Israel. They have a unique place in the eternal plan of almighty God. And the whole book of Revelation shows how it's all going to be fulfilled. I said I'd get political, um, but some of you, this might be helpful to you. So what I did, I took the two candidates. By the way, if you were paying attention, not last week during my 55, no, my 59, no, sorry, my hour and three-minute sermon. Oops. Um, I did not say one candidate's name the entire time. Did you notice that? Not one time. Didn't invoke any living candidate's name in the sermon. That was purposeful. Because I told you these are timeless universal principles that could be preached during any election season or on any, in any country today. So I'm going to violate that rule today, right now. I'm going to give you, if you were, in light of point number 10, prioritize the specific issues to help me be a good steward in terms of how I'm going to vote and I don't want to violate my conscience, then how might I proceed with that? Well, here's one way. I summarized, I'm, I'm putting personalities aside because that's what's futile. You can argue about the two candidates and their crass personalities or whatever all day long. And there's plenty of fodder to buttress your argument by the way for each candidate which i think is futile and in my opinion that's a waste of time what are the issues what do they stand for have they put anything in writing have they established a record of what they for and how they lead and how they rule and what they legislate yeah one is not a politician at all and has no record the other is but from going on literally to their websites and seeing their policies laid out and watching and listening and reading for the last year very carefully uh watching the debates or, and especially watching, reading the transcripts of the debates, listening to commentary on the debates, listening to their follow-up comment, comments about what they said during the debates for over the past year. Here is what I have concluded. Uh, so I'm going to give you 15 areas. I'm just going to run through these real quick. 15 issues. This has nothing to do with their personality. Issues they stand for, the two candidates, that they have articulated, that they defend, that they said they will do. And 
Out of the 15, few of them are highly debatable. I mean, you might one or two come up and say, well, I don't know about number nine. I'd say, well, I've amassed a lot of data on this. You're going to have to show me otherwise. I've heard it out of his or her own mouth repeatedly. Here we go. I'm going to go quick. So this is the two candidates um, on the issues. We, we have the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate. Notice I haven't said their names yet. Okay, here we go. D for Democrat, R for Republican that are running for president right now in the United States. D is pro-abortion. R is pro-life. D defended Planned Parenthood when recently they were exposed for selling baby body parts for money. R publicly condemned the selling of baby body parts by Planned Parenthood. It's a fact. Number two, D supports gay marriage and will appoint justices accordingly. R hasn't talked a whole lot about this issue with respect to a definition of marriage. Three, D wants higher taxes. R says lower taxes. Number four, D is pro-Palestinian. R is pro-Israel. Five, D wants open borders. R says they will patrol the borders or crack down on the borders. Six, D has said they will appoint liberal judges. R has said he will appoint constitutional judges. Seven, D's policies will grow government. R has specifically said he wants to scale back government. Eight, D is socialistic in many tendencies. R promotes free enterprise and capitalism. Number nine, D wants more gun control. R says we need to protect the Second Amendment. Ten, D says we need to put more limits on the First Amendment. What's that? Freedom of speech, including shutting down some conservative radio stations. Um, R says, no, we need to expand the First Amendment and its rights, even in their speech when they said we need to extend that right to churches and pastors who should be allowed to speak their political opinion from the pulpit without being punished. Number 11, we need to tax CO2 because of global warming, says D. R says global warming really is not a crisis or a threat. 12, D is promoting government-controlled health care. R says we need more competition and not government-controlled health care and give patients more options. 13, D says scale back on the military. R says, no, actually, we need to rebuild the military. 14, D has policies that will increase the national debt, which is at $20 trillion right now. R says, no, we need to reduce the debt, otherwise our country is going to collapse. And then 15, D, D's running mate, is socialistic. And 15, R's running mate, this is just a fact, is a Christian, not a fuzzy Christian, but a professed, born-again, Bible-believing Christian. So anyway, those are 15 issues that I'm taking into consideration as I think and pray, and, uh, but it's not easy. And I actually don't know how I'm going to vote. I told you I wasn't going to vote because I don't know. I might do that right in thing. Derek Brown. <laughs> Wait, is he 35? Yeah, he's 35. He's 35. 
Well, with that, let's go to let's go to lunch. Let's pray and let's keep it praying to God and seeking his wisdom. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people, fellow believers, to be encouraged by the saints. God, the greatest privilege of all, really, to worship you, to pray to you. Being reminded that we're in your family because of the person of Jesus Christ and his work. By his substitutionary death on the cross where he absorbed your anger, your wrath for sin willingly on behalf of sinners and how he raised himself from the dead ascended into heaven and reigns as king of kings right now and his heart's desire is to keep seeking and saving sinners may that be our heart's desire as well as the church thank you that it is so clear in scripture what our mandate is what our mission is help us to not be distracted about by all the things going on around us and continue to give us wisdom that as christians we might please you and be faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us we pray all this for your glory in christ's name amen Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.